Today's passage is Romans 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Thanks, Sydney. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Romans 7. It's our text for this morning. I'm so excited for us to be able to continue in worship on this Palm Sunday in the book of Romans. And we're going to be talking about what, what this text just spoke about. We're going to be talking about the law. And so if you've read through this passage at all this week or even in listening to it being read, if you go back through it, I encourage you to circle, highlight, underline every time you see the word law. And what you'll see in the first six verses, that word appears in every single verse. And if you go on into Romans 7, you're going to see the word law or commandment, speaking about the same thing, the first 14 verses all address the law. And, and that's the topic that Paul wants to take us to this morning. He was writing this letter to the church at Rome. And it's really a continuation of where we've been. And so we've been talking about union with Christ. What does it look like to be united with Him? And the implications that that union has on sin, on uh, being a slave to sin, on now the law. And so you could call this union with Christ part three. If we have died with Christ, how does that affect the way we view sin? How's the way that we view like who and what is our master? And this week, what does it look like in the way that it affects the law and our relationship to the law? And when we're talking about the law, we're talking about uh, the Mosaic Covenant, God's law. And so in order to help us kind of get into this, I have a question for you that you don't have to raise your hand uh, and answer to, but here's the question. How many of you have ever broken the law? Yeah, I get some chuckles. I'm not just talking about God's law. I'm talking about like the law, you know, the law of our country. So I want to just admit and confess to you, some of your pastors, I have broken the law before. And I was thinking about that, just reading through this text and thinking about um, the weight of the law. And when I was in college, I was running late for a test one day. I lived at home. I was in Gray. I was heading to ETSU. And as I was on my way, as you know, if you're going from Gray to Johnson City, the speed limit decreases, but my foot on the accelerator did not let up that day. So I was in a hurry to get there, make it for the test on time, and I came over the hill, and what should my wondering eyes should appear but an unmarked silver Mustang waiting to greet me on the other side. And I tried to slow down, but I knew it was coming. The lights came on, and I got pulled over, and um, all kinds of things were going through my head in that moment. Uh, anxiety, guilt, uh, frustration, like this is a speed trap of all the days, what are they doing, like what's going on? But, but in the end, it didn't matter what I thought about it, it didn't matter how I felt about it, it didn't matter, all that mattered was I was guilty, I had broken the law, and I was under the law. 
And what Paul is writing to the church at Rome and what he wants them to understand, what we need to understand today is all of us are under the law of God. Every single one of us are under God's law. We are accountable to the law. It doesn't matter whether you know it fully, whether you've read it, whether you agree about it, whether you disagree about it. Every single person who has ever been born and who is alive is under the law. That's why he says, if you have your Bible open in verse 1, or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he's living. So as long as you're alive and I'm alive, we are under the law of God. And the bad news of that is every single one of us have broken God's law and are accountable to God's law. But what I'm here to share with you this morning, and this is the point of this passage and our big truth, is this, is this glorious reality of the gospel, is that in Christ we are set free from the power of the law. Amen? In Christ, we are, we can be set free from the power of the law. And the law is powerful. And so what I want to do in the limited time we have is walk through this text, ask some questions that the text is calling us to ask and answer those questions out of the text about our relationship to the law in light of Christ. And then out of that, we're going to be going into an elder panel this morning talking about, okay, if we do have freedom from the law of Christ, what is our responsibility and our response to Jesus when it comes to sharing the gospel with the lost and serving the vulnerable? So that's, that's the direction this morning. So here's the first question that we need to answer, especially in an American context, and it's this. Why is the law so powerful? Why is the law so powerful. So again, in verse 1, he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. So the expectation is that this audience receiving this message knew the Mosaic law. They knew the Mosaic covenant. The reason why we know he's talking about God's moral law, the Mosaic law, is because in verse 6, he says, not in the old way of written code. And when he says old way of written code, he is directly referring back to the original law, the Mosaic law, the, the first five books of, of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and God's law. And God's law is good. Even the psalmist in Psalm uh, 1, uh, he talks about how his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. God's law is good. It's good for God's people. But all people are under the law. So why is the law so powerful? First idea is this. The law is God's standard for righteousness. It's his standard for righteousness. And we've been looking at this all throughout the book of Romans, that the law is a good thing. It's not bad because it helps us see and understand God's righteousness, his perfection, his holiness. It, it gives us a measuring stick to see how wonderful and glorious God is. But not only does it give us a measuring stick, it gives us the method or means of trying to live up to God's glorious standard. And so God's people were called to obey God's law as a reflection of Him. And we too are called to pursue God. We are under the law, meaning He is the standard of excellence and perfection, and we are called to pursue that. That's good, but there's a problem. The problem is, none of us have lived up to that standard, right? All of us, every single one of us, has broken the law. That leads to the second idea this morning. The law entices our sin nature, and it exposes our sinfulness. Look at verse 5 again. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions 
aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Here's what Paul's saying is that when we got the law, when we understand what God's law is, that sin takes advantage of the law. So instead of our sinful hearts living in submission to God's law, our sinful hearts long to break the law. And if you're a parent in the room, you know this to be true. How many times have you ever asked your child when they were young or told your child, don't touch that? And what's the very next thing that they do? You know, don't stand on that. Don't throw your food on the floor. Don't close your mouth when I'm trying to feed you. You you understand that. There's something inside of us that we long to break the law. And we even can get a rise or get a high out of breaking the law. That's our sin nature trying to uh, use the law to take advantage of the law. But the law does not only entice our sin nature, but the law condemns our sin. It helps us understand our sinfulness, that when we put our life in measurement against God's moral standard, His perfection, His righteousness, we all fall short. On those scales, we don't balance out, right? We are all condemned by the law. In fact, this is the way that Romans 6 ends. This is kind of Paul's summary statement. He says, for the wages of sin is death. The right payment for your sin and my sin is death. It's punishment in and of ourselves apart from Christ. And the law condemns us of that sin. But it gets worse. Here's the third idea, and this is what Paul's beginning with this morning, is that the law is binding on every single person who is alive. Look again at verse 1. For I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if you're living, if you're breathing, if blood's flowing through your veins, you are accountable to the law. I am accountable to the law in and of ourselves. So that leads to a second question, and that's this. How can we be set free from the law? As long as I'm living in America, as long as I'm here and I'm alive, whether I like it or not, I'm subject to the laws of this country. Remember my speeding ticket. I can't drive however fast I want to drive. There are laws that prevent me from doing that. doesn't matter what I think about it. I'm subject to that law. We are all, as long as we're living, we are subject to the law of God. So how can we be set free from the power of the law? Paul gives us that answer. Freedom from law is only possible through death. The only way that you and I can be set free from the power of the law is we must die. Look at verses 2 through 3. Paul gives an analogy, gives a metaphor, and he uses marriage to describe this reality. This is what he says. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, this is the key part, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So he's using the picture of marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman in relationship and covenant relationship to God for all of life. And to step outside of that relationship while your spouse is living is to become an adulterer. 
you are under that law. You are condemned by the law and you are bound to that as long as you are living. But if one of your spouse, if your spouse is to die, to pass away, then you are free from the law. You are free to marry another without receiving the condemnation of the law. And I know that raises questions and we've had some uh, messages. You can go back and read some of our messages on marriage or listen to those. But that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is this, is that as long as we are alive, we are bound to the law and the only way that we can be released is to die. And this is the good news of the gospel in our next big idea. The good news of the gospel is that our old self is put to death through the death of Jesus in our place. Amen? The, the good news of the gospel is that you die with Jesus. The old you is crucified. The old you goes into the grave. That's what we saw up here in the baptistry earlier. We got to celebrate with our sister and this morning with our brother is that when they go in the water and come out, it's a picture that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, just like he was died and he went into the grave, that on the third day he rose again to new life. So we celebrate this week. So friend, if you are a believer, if you've placed saving faith in Jesus, the old you is dead. This is what Paul, the reason he's saying these things, he's going back to Romans 6, 11 through 14. And for the sake of time, I'll just read verse 14. He says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but are under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under what? The law, you are now under grace. Paul is circling back to the statement that he said now in 7, 1 through 6. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Jump down to verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. When you place saving faith in Jesus, the old you is put to death. And that is good news. When you place your faith in Jesus, the old you dies. It goes down into the grave. It's gone. It's gone. God doesn't make bad people good or good people better. This is important. God raises the dead to life. This is what the gospel does. God's not trying to make a better version of you. God wants the old you to die and wants to raise you back up to be a new person in Jesus Christ. And this is the good news of the gospel. And so we don't have to live under the law anymore because we died to that. We get to live for Christ. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses, says this, I have been crucified with Christ. The old me, he's dead. He's gone. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Amen? In the faith I now live, or the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who He loved me and He gave Himself for me. That's what we were singing about this morning and celebrating this morning. Is that if you are in Christ, the old you is gone. You are not normal anymore. You were made brand new. So that begs a third question. And this is so important, and we'll even get into this more next week. What does freedom from the law look like in the life of a Jesus follower? So if we have been crucified with Christ, if we've died with Him, if we're raised to a new life, what does it look like to live as a Jesus follower from freedom from the law? Three things quickly. The first is this. Free from the law 
we are wholly devoted to Jesus. Look at verse 4. And this really is the center point of this passage this morning. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that, and I've got that circled in my body, so, or in my Bible, when he says, so that, he's saying, this is the reason, this is the point, this is why Jesus has done all of this, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. That you may belong, that, that's the key phrase. Or that you may be joined to another. Or here's the illustration. He's going back to the metaphor. So that you may be married to another. What Paul is saying is before faith in Jesus Christ, we are married to the law. We are locked into the law. But the reason we've died and risen again is not to just live for ourselves, to do whatever we want, to to just be free from the law. No, the reason why Jesus has rescued you is so that you may belong to him. So that you might be wholly devoted to him. So that you might be, to use the metaphor, married to Jesus. He becomes your treasure. He becomes your joy. He becomes your all. He becomes your life. He becomes everything to you and to me. Timothy Keller says it this way, Becoming a Christian is a complete change in relationship and allegiance. To be a Christian, listen to this, is to fall in love with Jesus and enter into a legal yet personal relationship as comprehensive as marriage. When you get married, no part of your life goes unaffected, right? That's true. So though, so through, uh, so though Christians are now not under the law, they have every aspect of their lives changed by the coming of Jesus Christ. No area is untouched. To be a Christian is to fall in love with Jesus. Amen? To be a Christian is to fall in love with Jesus. It's to be captivated and captured by Jesus. The gospel is not just okay news. It is good news. That when we were vulnerable and we were dead in our sin, Jesus made a way to rescue us. And when that happens, we are wholly devoted to him. Dr. John Piper says it this way, So being set free from the law does not mean freedom from love and justice. It means we freedom to marry the one who is love and justice. The one who produces love in us from the inside out. When you die to the law, you marry another, Jesus. You see, following Jesus is not about keeping a moral set of rules. Following Jesus is about falling in love. It's about Jesus becoming your greatest treasure. It's about Jesus becoming your joy. When, when I asked Katie to marry me, I didn't marry her because I wanted to get certain things out of marriage, because I liked her cooking, or just because I thought she was pretty, and all those things are true. But the reason I asked her to marry me is because she captured my heart. She became a treasure to me. And every single area of my life has been affected by my love relationship with her. And on such more a great level, this is what happens when we are united to Christ. We become wholly devoted to Him. It's not about keeping rules, a contract. But instead, it's about giving your life away to the one that you love. Following Jesus is about giving your life away. It's about love. It's not just about freedom to do whatever we want. No, it's freedom to be wholly devoted to the one that we were made for. Isaiah 62, 4 through 5, the prophet Isaiah looks ahead and he's looking at what God is going to do and he uses the metaphor of marriage. 
He says, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. Talking about God to God's people. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And on the other side of the cross, Isaiah is looking at God's people in exile and saying, one day God is going to make a way to marry you to himself. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, that relationship is made possible. Isn't it beautiful? But not only are we wholly devoted to Christ when we have been set free from the power of the law, secondly, we live in obedience, or we bear fruit for God's glory. We bear fruit for God's glory. When we are set free from the law, we bear fruit for God's glory. Look again at verse 4. So that you may belong to another to whom he's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Here's what Paul's saying. When Jesus becomes your joy, when Jesus becomes your treasure, your life is lived for the glory of God. Not for yourself, not for anything else, but for the glory of God. You bear fruit for the glory of God. Another way of saying it is this. When you fall in love with someone, you fall in love with what that person loves. So when you fall in love with Jesus, you love what Jesus loves. The reason why we have Share Week and we are doing the things that we're doing this week is because Jesus loves the lost. Amen? And as God's people who've been redeemed from darkness and light, we love the people that Jesus loves. We love the lost. Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we too go through the power of the Holy Spirit asking God to seek and to save the lost through our witness. And that leads us to the last idea is this. Free from the law, we are able to live in obedience to the Holy Spirit. So you might be sitting there and saying, I, I want to love God with my all. I want to love Jesus. I want to be in love with Him. I want my life to bear fruit. And I struggle to do that. The good news today, brothers and sisters, is you don't have to do it in and of yourself. But it happens through the power and work and presence of Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. He's saying we don't live according to the law anymore. We live according to the power of the Holy Spirit. This is beautiful. And there's so much that we could unpack. But, but the point is this. When you are saved, when salvation becomes true in you, you don't want to just live for yourself anymore. You want to live for Jesus. And you don't want to bear fruit for yourself. You want your life to bear fruit for the glory of God. And you do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a Jesus follower. And that's what it means to live free from the law. So we're going to talk more about how we do that practically. But before we do, I just want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes this morning and give you an opportunity just to respond. Has there ever been a time in your life when Jesus became your love? When Jesus became your treasure? Where he became everything? Not a religious code, not going to church, not living according to a system, but Jesus became your lover, your treasure, your joy. 
This is what the gospel does. It changes us from the inside out and it draws us to Christ. And the way we know we are His is because we don't live for ourselves anymore. We don't live to keep a certain set of rules or standard. We lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel because of the one that we love. Has that happened for you? And if it hasn't, friend, I would encourage you, I would implore you this morning, turn to Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus. Turn to Him. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin. To save you. To become your love. To become your hope. To become your joy. And if you're here this morning, you are a believer. I think what this passage compels us to ask is this. Christian, have you lost your first love? Have you begun to sell out to another lover? Is your heart wholly devoted to the one who purchased you by his own blood? Is your life being lived for the glory of your name or for the glory of his name? Even this moment, as we go into a week where we are calling one another to share this good news, we can't share it with others until it becomes good news for us. I just encourage you in this moment to remember the gospel that Jesus came to you when you were the most vulnerable. When you were broken, when you were far from God, when you were a rebel, when you couldn't save yourself, that's when Jesus stepped into your life. Turn to him. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Father God, I pray that we would be a people, a redeemed people who live on mission together out of the overflow of the gospel, not doing things because they are law and we have to, but we live in light of the law because we want to honor you. We want to glorify your name. We want to bring you glory because Jesus has captured our heart. May you do that in this room and in our lives. May we be that kind of church. Do that in my heart, Father God, through the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. I want to invite you to turn your attention to the screen. and We're going to watch a video that's going to set up our conversation and talk more practically about how do we follow Jesus when it comes to sharing our faith with others. Check this out. Jesus lived his life loving the lost, using the routines of his life to engage his friends with the gospel. In John 15, 15, he said, I have called you, friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This was true friendship to Jesus, telling others what he heard from the Father. Like Jesus, we can use the routines of our lives, like the meals we eat, to make the gospel God has shown us known to our friends. This is the love of Jesus, and we are here to share it. morning, everybody. Great to be with you. We're going to have an elder conversation, as we call it. This is something we do from time to time. And I told my daughter we were going to have this today, and she said, Dad, is that kind of like sitting in the middle of an elder's meeting? I said, no, it's not like that at all. We're going to have a few of your elders up there and talk about this week that we're going into as a church that we call Neighbors and Nations. Saw a video talking about share meals. That's just an aspect of Neighbors and Nations this week we're going into, and what that means for us as church family. So got Two of my best friends up here, Daniel and Paul. Daniel, welcome back, man. Been on vacation. You doing okay? I'm a little on beach time, but I'm all right. (laughs) Okay, good. Paul, man, thanks for preaching the word, sharing the truth with us. I appreciate your 
vulnerability about transgressing the law 12 years ago when you were in college. I really appreciate your vulnerability there, Paul. But anyway. Um, I didn't say I haven't broken it since then. I just haven't been caught breaking it right, since then. Right, okay. So, so we'll publicly confess this morning. That, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to talk about some things that are coming up this week in the life of our church so that you'll know what they mean to you and why they're important and significant and really why we do something called Neighbors and Nations. Again, if you've been a part of our church any amount of time, we, we do this twice a year. It's kind of an emphasis, and we call it Neighbors and Nations. We do all this for a purpose. So, Danny, why don't you take the first one and just help us understand what's the big idea this week? What, what are we headed into? What are we trying to accomplish? Those kind of things. Sure. Uh, why? I, I've told you guys that I fly first class on the selfish plane. All right, I've told you guys this before. Uh, are any of you... Paul did 12 years ago. 12 years ago. That's right. 12 years ago. Are, do any of you guys fly the on the selfish plane? Any guys in the selfish plane? A few of you. All right, listen. If you did not raise your hand and you're sitting next to somebody that didn't raise their hand or your spouse, your child, tell them they have received a complimentary upgrade to first class with Daniel. I mean, the bottom line is we're all just incredibly selfish people. We, we are naturally driven to focus on ourselves and even when we focus on others the tendency is to focus on those who are the closest to us and so in that bent that selfish bent it does us very very well to broaden our focus and consider the nations uh, consider those who are a little bit further than outside of our inner circle a little bit further away from us and realize that we have a responsibility to advance the gospel to those people. And so twice a year, we hold up this thing called Neighbors and Nations. And that's really what it's about, to prompt us, to encourage us, to advance the gospel strategically to our neighbors that are right next to us today and to our neighbors who we can strategically prioritize to take the gospel to tomorrow around the world. And our responsibility for both of those things. And we do that around two holidays. We do that leading up to Easter. We do that leading up to Thanksgiving. And for the simple reason that those two holidays promote gospel conversation. So, for example, this week, tell someone why Easter is important to you as a believer. And you will have to talk to them about the resurrection. And it's really hard to start talking about the resurrection and not get into a gospel conversation. And so we hold up this thing not because it's the end all, not because we're only going to share the gospel twice a year, but because we need a reminder in those handles to get outside of our selfish nature and look outside of ourselves. That's good. You mentioned it real quick. So uh, we do this two times a year. The other 50 weeks of the year doesn't matter. <laughs> not at all. So, we did, we, so to help with that the idea, we're trying to build a culture a little bit. Yeah, I, I would just say if they're handles. Uh, they try to get us going. I mean, anytime we share the gospel, anytime we sacrifice to advance the gospel, there's spiritual warfare involved. Guys, it's always awkward. I, I, don't, I just want to be honest. I don't need to go back 12 years. <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll, we'll stop picking up all. <laughs> Every gospel. This morning. <laughs> I know. I know. Every gospel conversation I ever have is so incredibly awkward. I stumble over my words even more than normal. It's just hard. It's just hard. And I think for us to be able to come together as a church and take a week and focus ourselves helps us not just in those yeah. two weeks, but also in the other fit. Yeah, awesome, good. 
So help us a little bit. If you've been around for any amount of time, again, you've heard of something called share meals. Just watched a video about it. Uh, share meals are something that we pursue, kind of a practice. Again, hopefully all year, but particularly during Neighbors and Nations, like the week that's coming up. So challenging everybody to set up a share meal. Paul, I, I'm new to Tri-Cities. Let's say I haven't been here very long. Hear about these share meals. What's that all about? What's the point? Yeah. So the point is, it is, and you guys have already talked about this a little bit, it's, it's an easy way for us to collectively, as a church, share the gospel. Um, and again, why share meals this week? Because it's Easter week, and there's no easier way to talk about the gospel, or no better time during the year to say, hey, what are you doing for Easter? And most people will respond and then ask you the same question because they're polite and live in the South. What are you are doing for Easter? And it's an opportunity for you to talk about the gospel. So that's why share meals this week, but specifically why share meals, because a meal is an intimate way for us to be able to talk to somebody about what's going on in their life and be able to bridge that into a gospel conversation. And like Daniel said, it's, it can be messy. There's a lot of anxiety that comes with those things. But what we're really just looking is for a good opportunity to be able to tell people about what we talked about this morning, Romans 7. Jesus is the love of our life. And again... We talk about what we love. And when the gospel begins to capture your heart and you're sitting across someone drinking a cup of coffee or you're eating a meal, um, it becomes natural to talk about what you love and what's captured your heart. And so it's creating, facilitating an opportunity to do that. And it's allowing us as a church body to have the accountability that we're all trying to pursue that in the same week together. You know, because on our own, sometimes we put things off and whatever, and it, so it makes it time-sensitive and it adds some accountability and allows us to pray for one another. And so every single meal of every single day this week, when you pray, thank God for the meal, you can also pray for a brother or sister who, very likely in a church this size, someone is sharing their faith at that moment. So it brings us all around together. But like you said, the goal isn't that we just do share meals for a week and then we never share the gospel again. The goal is that we're having share meals all the time, conversations all the time with people. And this is just a way for us to do it together. And even tonight, the family meal that we're having tonight is kind of a way for us to model that with one another. So when you come back tonight, we're going to sit around the table and we're going to talk about the gospel and we're going to pray for our lost friends, for our city, for the nations, for the vulnerable. Um, and so we kind of get to model here with one another what we're all going to try to go out and do this yeah. week for the glory of God. That's good. So I heard it said that if you follow the life of Jesus in the Gospels, how often he was either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal it's and true. using it for ministry. It's a great example. So take it next step a little bit. Uh, as a church... When we talk about gospel pursuits, we kind of, we kind of express that in five gospel pursuits, uh, things that we want to go after when we talk about gospel proclamation and gospel advancement. So we want to, we want to plant churches, we want to train leaders, we want to uh, reach the unreached, we want to uh, re uh, serve the vulnerable, and then what's the one, other Send one I missed? Disciples. Send disciples. That's it. Go. I knew them this morning. Um, You're on beach time too, that's I okay. I love beach time. But over the course of time, we want to focus on all of those equally because that's really a holistic, healthy, big picture of gospel advancement. So every year at Neighbors and Nations, we choose one of those to focus on. So this one coming up is this idea of serve the vulnerable. What does that look like? What does that mean? Uh, we say we believe the gospel compels us as believers to serve the vulnerable. Now, I imagine when you hear that, every one of us have a certain idea of what that means. So I think this week is going to 
This week's going to challenge us a little bit. It's going to stretch our understanding in it. So when we say serve the vulnerable, what does it mean? Why is that one of our gospel pursuits as a church? Sure. I think the, the last thing you touched on is really important. We live in a kind of a Twitter culture, so everything fits in 120 characters. And what gets lost in that is definition. So someone makes a statement, and then everybody leaves the room nodding their head to that statement, but there's a hundred different definitions going on to what that actually means. And so it's really important for us as we talk about serving the vulnerable that we give definition to that. Because mm-hmm. the truth is we are all vulnerable. We, we all have need. We are all at risk. If you're a person, you're at risk. And so the reality is today we serve. We serve today. But we serve today prioritizing for tomorrow. And one of the things that we want to do this week as a church is unpack some categories in which we can prioritize how we serve the vulnerable. Because the truth is, all the risks are not the same. They're just not the same. And so the first thing that we see is, man, it's good to recognize that there are those whose community is at risk. And we mean that in a broad sense of just general living and community. And so it's a good thing for someone to say, you know what, I think every child in the Tri-City should have a pencil. I mean, we need to make sure every kid has a pencil. It's a good thing to say every kid in the world should have a pair of shoes. That's a good thing. It's a better thing to recognize that there are those whose life is at risk. It's a better thing to adopt or foster a child who's in an abusive situation. It's, It's a better thing to give up your Friday and awkwardly stand outside of the clinic and plead for the life of an unborn. Those are better things. Those are those whose very life is at risk. But greater than those are those whose soul is at risk. The greatest thing that we're going to do to serve the vulnerable is to proclaim the gospel. Because as Paul preached this morning, in Jesus and Jesus alone is our hope, is our joy, is our future, our life. And so anything out part of, outside of proclaiming the gospel is a lesser endeavor. And so as a church, we have to find the balance and be a both-and kind of a church, which yeah. we recognize there is someone in front of me. When you go out to grab dinner or grab lunch today, there's going to be a waiter or a waitress who's at risk in front of you. There's going to be a neighbor. There's going to be a kid down the street. Today. That's Today. But we have to do that as a church with the responsibility to prioritize for tomorrow for greater proclamation of the gospel, recognizing that there are those in our world who are at greater risk. And we have to be able to do both of those things. So it's a thing, a very real thing as we walk through this week to unpack a prioritized definition of the vulnerable that recognizes there are those in our community that are at risk. There are those whose life is at risk and most importantly there are those whose soul is at risk yeah, yeah. Man, and i hope you hear that is so helpful because I, it, for all of us i'll just take me you see so much need and we talk about the vulnerable and it's just this broad category like where do i help how do i get involved what does that look like but to help us as a church 
have a prioritization that seems to be a, a biblical prior, helps us know how to take helpful action. That's good. I, I appreciate that. I think one of you guys said real quick, and I hope you heard that. If we don't understand that we're vulnerable as well, in other words, gospel vulnerability, we all are, then here's what's going to happen as we serve the vulnerable. We're going to say we're serving them, those lesser ones over there, who are just not as fortunate as I am, and it will breed arrogance. So we have to be very careful to understand we're coming from a place, we're vulnerable too, and if someone hadn't rescued us named Jesus, we're just as vulnerable. That's right. So we have to be very careful to not let that breed this arrogance in us. So Paul, take it a little bit, tie in the gospel motivation for this, and help us understand, this is me wrestling with this, what's the difference in what we're talking about here and what we might call, and I'm going to use a broad term, just social justice? Because social justice can be so distorted and we're just doing something for the sake of doing it. Help us understand what we're, we're talking about is really motivated for a different reason, maybe. Yeah. Help us with that. You know exactly what you're saying. I mean, I, I, social justice is a good thing if the gospel is at the center of why we're pursuing social justice. But, you know, when you read the pages of Scripture, you never see social justice just for social justice' sake. Um, it's always rooted in the gospel. It's always wanting to take the gospel and serve people with the gospel. And we've heard the axiom, the phrase before, you know, share the gospel and when necessary use words. Well, that's not biblical. That's not the gospel. Uh, Romans 10, Paul says, how will they hear unless they have a preacher? And he's not talking about good deeds. He's talking about the message of the gospel being proclaimed. So we love people through our sacrifice, through good deeds, serving them where they are, but we also give them the message that matters because if the gospel is not tied to that, we might be solving their physical need or solving their societal need, their, their issues, their needs for justice, but if we're not sharing the gospel with them, then we're, just, we're not helping them for the real need. So as the people of God, we have to live in the tension that Daniel's talking about prioritizing for tomorrow, how do we help advance the gospel to those who are most vulnerable around the world with no access to the things that we do, but also not missing the person in front of us and the people in our own community. And in that, um, realizing that as Christians, we need to be aware. Like, we should be broken about the collapse that's happening in Venezuela right now. Like, it should break our hearts. We need to do something about it. I saw a BBC article the other day where women at the border of Venezuela who are coming out of the country are literally selling their hair for money because they have no earthly possessions to sell. I mean, you think about how vulnerable that is. Or the tsunami victims in Africa. And we can just list go on and on. We need yeah. to care deeply. That should bother us. We need to get yeah. involved. But not just to help with their immediate suffering, but as a means to point them to the true state of vulnerability, which is the gospel need. Yeah, so... We talk about this topic, I, I know for a lot of us you're hearing it and there's so many different angles of this to chase. So that's the idea of this week. I mean, a lot of different venues, a lot of different opportunities for us to continue to have a really healthy biblical understanding of what we mean by serve the vulnerable. So really hope we, we all learn and grow in this area this week. Uh, really quick, Friday night, we're gonna come together to celebrate Good Friday here. There's, there's a purpose behind that, obviously, celebrate the cross to help us What's Friday night all about? Help us with that. Sure. Friday night, I mean, we're talking about Good Friday. We're talking about the cross. So just understand as we've gone through Romans as a church, all the way back into Romans 1, we were guilty without excuse. We were the definition of vulnerable. And Jesus left heaven 
and took the cross for you. He did that for you. And after Christ is resurrected, he goes and appears to his followers, his disciples, and he gives them a message. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. This idea of looking outside of ourselves and going out with the gospel, not just where we live, where we work, or where we play, but literally going out, going to the nations, to the people of the world, and taking on that responsibility as an ambassador of Jesus to proclaim that good news. Listen, church, that is not just a strategy of Tri-Cities Baptist Church. That is a biblical mandate given to every child of God. It is the Great Commission. And we do that today, man, as best we can, always at the same time prioritizing for tomorrow. And what a great place to come together in worship and give thanks for the sacrifice of the cross and be rallied to go out than a Good Friday service as we look back to Christ's work and his mission coming out of that. And so when we gather Friday night as a church, we're going to look back at the cross and we're going to move from the cross to the vulnerable. And we're going to hold up uh, our give to go because our resources are a part of that. Uh, Everything we can muster to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those whose soul is at risk here and around the world. So that's Good Friday in a nutshell. As a believer, that should get you excited to come together, to sing praises to the Lord, to take the Lord's Supper, to look back and remember what was paid, and at the same time be motivated out of that through the resurrection into Easter to go out on mission. That's, again, not just our strategy. That's a mandate. That's our mission. Good. It's helpful. Helpful. So hope Hope you, since our excitement, it's a big week in the life of our church, what we want to see and asking God to do in the life of our church. So first, we think these guys are going to head off stage. Just thank them for what they do, serving our church. Thank, thank uh, put their hands together. Appreciate it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just kind of lead us in a word of prayer. We're going to go into our time of offering. And then after that, I'll give you a few more details going into next week as we prepare for Neighbors and Nations. So. Let me just pray for a time of offering, ask you to prepare for that. Uh, Ushers, if you go ahead and be making your way down, and then we'll wrap up and dismiss after I share a few more details. Lord, thank you again for this morning. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity that's set ahead of us as a church. And God, we pray for this week. Uh, Lord, I pray this week we learn. Uh, Lord, I pray this week that we grow. Uh, I pray this week, God, that we repent. Lord, there's some things in our mind that, that we, we want to be challenged by your word, that we have certain perspectives, Lord, just not in line with your word. And God, I pray we go in action and obey in a gospel-saturated way that honors you. Lord, multiply these offerings for the name of Jesus. We love you. For Christ's sake, amen.